take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter number 2 is where we're going to be as we continue our series called Revitalize, a church health checkup. Before we get into the study today, I do have a couple of announcements that I need to stress. This is part of our worship as we go out into the uh, community this week. Uh, first of all, we have, um, we've adopted a day as a church for the 40 Days for Life campaign this upcoming Saturday over in Huntsville. There's information on our Facebook page about what's going to be occurring, but it's really just a day of prayer. We're not over there to be on the six o'clock news or cause a scene or anything. We're really there just to pray that God would bring an end to this barbarism of infanticide, of the killing of children, and that these mothers that are going through this traumatic time of these unexpected pregnancies, that they would see that there's a great alternative to choosing death, and that's choosing life and even uh, adoption. Um, and so we're praying for that. Um, if you'd like to know more information about that, we still need several folks to sign up. You don't have to stay over there all day. Uh, you sign up for hour slots. I've signed up for the noon hour. I would love to have a couple of folks join me in prayer at noon over there. Uh, Lynn Thompson, wave at us, Lynn, so everybody sees where you're at. She is the one that's organizing our day next Saturday. So if you have any questions about that, see her. Go to the church Facebook page, go to the link, and sign up for one of the time slots next Saturday. And again, you're not signing up for the whole day, but just an hour max to be involved in that and pray. And then uh, the person who founded this 40 Days for Life event several years ago, her name is Abby Johnson, and a movie came out uh, not too long ago about Abby's story and about how she worked in an abortion clinic for many, many years and was called in to actually assist an ultrasound-guided abortion finally. I mean, she had worked at this clinic her whole lot, uh, for many, many years and then actually saw a live abortion, and it changed her forever. And this movie talks about her, her, um, her testimony and her life. Uh, we were trying to get something organized to where we could show you this, but this is a movie that you want to be careful with, with, with younger children. Uh, it is graphic. It does show you the reality of what abortion is all about. But if you would like to um, see that, I know Carrie Maddox has offered her home this Friday to go over there and just to watch that and then to have a time of prayer there. Um, but, of course, you can get this anywhere that uh, online movies are made available. And take a look at that if you've um, never really seriously looked at this issue of abortion. Um, that movie uh, will definitely introduce you to the, to the need. And so um, I hope that you'll be in prayer for these things going on around trying to impact our community with the truth of the gospel. Amen. And to stand for life and to share with these mothers the hope of eternal life found in Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, this verse has really been on my heart and mind with this whole issue around, you know, the 40 days for life and what we can do. Do you ever feel sometimes like you see these world problems and you figure, what can I do? I'm just one person. We're just one little church. What can we do? Have you ever felt helpless? I know I have. But you know what? God tells us this in Psalm 82, verse 3. He says, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the, to the afflicted and the needy. And so you know what? We have that calling on our life. Carrie? Yeah, thank you. Yes, I kind of glossed over that part, right? Yeah, Carrie, Carrie doesn't have a, um, a size room like this to view it in. And so, uh, but she would love to open up her home. So if you would like to join her 
and some of her friends and family on Friday evening. Let her know so that she can plan accordingly. Sorry I glossed over that. Thank you for stopping me. I do appreciate that. And so let's be in prayer for this and get involved in whatever way that we can. Um, our, our goal as a church is to present you opportunities to get involved and to call you to action to be the church, not only here in these walls, but out in our community. And so with that said, let's get into our study here today. Hope you'll be back tonight as we continue our growth tracks. Got off to a great start last weekend with those and looking forward to those uh, tonight. Pastor Don will say more about that in the closing announcement. So the title of this series that we've been in is Revitalize, a study in church health, a church health checkup. Week one, we looked at this topic of faithful stewardship. And we talked about how God has entrusted to us all of these resources and opportunities, and he's given to us influence, amen? And we have the opportunity to steward that for his honor and his glory. And so we talked about what it means to be a faithful steward and the responsibility that we have. Then in week two, we looked at this powerful phrase, one another. And we talked about how a church that is healthy and thriving is a church that understands the value and vitality of the phrase, one another. And we talked about biblical community, and it was, it was fun this week to, to practice biblical community and having some fellowship with one of our church families over at our house, and that was a lot of fun. And, and just to get to know them better and to uh, laugh with them and for them to see how bad I play Rook. Uh, yeah, we had a good time with that. So Robert and Kim can tell you more about that. We hope to have more of you over in the days ahead. We'd love to get every family through our church or th- through our house, every family in our church through our house at some point. If you've never been over there, please, we, we, we want you to come and be a part and just get to know you better. Uh, last week, we talked about five signs of a healthy church. We went through several uh, points, um, just looking at truths from God's word on how we can be more healthy. Today, we're going to look at this issue, and that is four attitudes that hinder healthy church growth. Four attitudes that hinder health. And so with that said, I want to share with you uh, this gentleman on the screen. His name is Norman Cousins. How many of you have ever heard of good old Norman Cousins? All right, some of y'all have. Norman Cousins was an American political journalist and author. He lived from 1913 to 1990. And he is famous for what he discovered after being diagnosed with a life-debilitating condition called ankylosing spondylitis. I think I got that right. I practiced the pronunciation of that disease. You might wonder, what is that? It's a condition that is believed to be an autoimmune disease which creates crippling arthritis along the spinal column. A cousin's condition got so bad at its worst state that it caused his jaw to lock up due to the pain. There was no known cure for this disease or treatment at the time when he, is di- when he was diagnosed, except the doctors diagnosed high doses of aspirin. He was taking up to 30 pills of aspirin a day. How many of you would agree that's dangerous in and of itself, if you know what aspirin does to your blood? And so he was uh, recommended high doses of aspirin, which of course carry risk and side effects as well. He became very desperate for relief and for a cure. Any of you that have suffered from chronic diseases and pain would understand that. And so he became desperate for relief and a cure. Cousins turned to some research that he had discovered on his own. And what he discovered is is that high doses of vitamin C, I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? You've always heard vitamin C, it, it, it works wonders. But catch this. Also, he discovered that at least 10 minutes of laughter a day 
could aid in relief from his pain and potentially a reversal to the effects of his debilitating disease. So guess what he lived off of? He lived off of a steady diet of vitamin C and Marx Brothers films, Candid Camera, and selections from E.B. White's Sub-Treasury of American Humor. (laughs) And so he literally laughed his way to better health. In fact, it's said that, that uh, he was able to survive many, many years with almost little to no pain during his daily life because of that daily regimen of laughter. Of course, you and I both know he discovered something that's been in the Bible for over a thousand years. Proverbs 17:22 says, A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Isn't it amazing how a change of attitude can affect almost anything, even a crippling, life-debilitating, life-debilitating disease that, is, that was ruining Norman's health. When it comes to churches, to a church's spiritual health, a proper attitude is also essential. And today, what we're going to examine are four sinful attitudes or mindsets that hinder the health of a church and examine the opposite godly attitudes that cause it to thrive. And so with that said and that introduction given, let's look at Philippians chapter 2. But just to reiterate, the power of an attitude is a powerful ingredient in the health of your life physically, but also in the health of a church spiritually. And so with that, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 11. Is everybody there? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 11. Now before we read Philippians 2, verses 5 and 11 what we're going to immediately see is this is a heavy doctrinal passage. It's, uh, it's what theologians call a Christological study of the doctrine and the deity of Jesus Christ. However, this doctrinally rich passage is plumped right in the center of context with Paul talking about having the right kind of spirit of unity in the church and the right kind of attitudes in the church. Uh, For example, if you look back at verses 2 through 4, just read those quickly. It says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of the same accord, of one mind. So we talked about unity a couple of weeks ago and the value of unity and why it's so vital for church health. And he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem others better than himself. Paul's literally saying, with the right kind of humble attitude, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the, also on the things of others. So right here in the context of attitude, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, plops this powerful Christological teaching on the deity of Christ and the mission of Christ and what he did. And this is the passage we're going to study today. Before we study this passage, I just want to point to you what attitude is and kind of define it. Attitude is a settled way of thinking or feeling about, a, about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. And the reality is none of us can hide our attitude for too long with people who know us, even a little, right? I mean, obviously our family knows when we're having a bad attitude, Right? I saw some proverbial elbows just now to, to spouses. And yeah, so all of us know in our family, but even if even your friends, you know when they're having a bad day, when they're having a bad attitude. And so you don't have to know somebody long to start seeing their attitude showing. And so let's look at this passage of Scripture and read these uh, six or seven verses 
and see what kind of attitude Christ had in his coming to this earth. Look at it in verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you. And when you see the word mind, you can replace the word mind for attitude. What is attitude? It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. So let this mind, let this way of thinking, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you that we have your word before us today and that your word can lead us and teach us and be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, I pray today that you would help us to see these truths, help us to identify toxic attitudes that, that ruin health, both physically and spiritually. And Father, that we would see the opposite attitudes that we should have and that it should ultimately be generated through walking in your spirit, living the spirit-filled life. So, Father, speak to our hearts today. Help us to examine our attitudes, not only here in our corporate church setting, although that's the primary application we're looking at today, what kind of healthy attitudes can we have as a church body. But, Father, I pray that we'd see how these attitudes also not only ruin church relationships, but they also hinder marriage relationships, parenting, family relationships, job relationships. And so may these truths speak to us today as we examine our attitude, our mindset, and seek to repent and renew our minds according to truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So four attitudes that hinder church health. Four attitudes that hinder church health. If you're taking notes, following along there on the back of your handout, you can write this first one down. The first attitude that gets addressed here in this passage is the attitude of entitlement. The attitude of entitlement. Look back at verse 6 with me, and there's a quote from that verse there underneath that word. It says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, Jesus did not have the spirit of entitlement. He had the opposite, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But as we study this passage, what we're going to see is Jesus was the antithesis of what we're talking about, and thus Praise God, he's the antidote for a bad attitude. Look to Christ. Uh, get the mind of Christ, and you'll get the right mindset about everything else in life. But this first attitude we're going to look at is the attitude, the toxic attitude of entitlement. What is entitlement? It is the condition of thinking that we have a right to have something, do something, or get something. The feeling or belief that you deserve to be given something, such as special status recognition special privileges. And I see some of you smiling because you know that our whole culture today is centered around entitlements, entitlements, entitlements. And by the way, if you give somebody another entitlement, you can never take it away politically or else that is political uh, death. <laughs> um, but all of us have experienced people with an attitude of entitlement, haven't we? How many of you have ever been in line waiting for something and all of a sudden 
somebody feels like they're entitled to cut in line in front of you. Raise your hand if you've ever had been victim to a line cutter. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on the next question. Yeah, you know it's coming. How many of you have been the line cutter? And you know how it works, right? Here's how it works. You're like, oh, I didn't see the line of 50 people. Now, on the rare occasion, that does happen where you're not realizing how the whole line thing is set up and there's a big break and you didn't notice the, I always think of that uh, 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 Christmas uh, movie, you know, where they thought that the line was way up front and it's like way back at the back of the store. And so I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hand about if you are a line cutter, but all of us have probably fallen victim to someone who feels like they're entitled to cut in line in front of us. I was at Chick-fil-A, you know, the greatest little fast food place on earth just a few weeks ago. And you know how it gets at Chick-fil-A on the belt line. Can, can I get a witness? I mean, cars wrapped three deep around the building. And so I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there at that cutoff before you go around the front of the building where cars can come in the other way. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, and those cars come in that way and they, and they know there's a line of 20 cars wrapped around. Oh, I'm about to eat the Lord's, you know, fried chicken, you know, I'm about to eat Chick-fil-A and I'm struggling in my spirit because this person feels entitled. They feel like they have special access and, and rights. And so all of us have experienced this entitlement mindset. And, and if we're honest, we've all slipped into this entitlement mindset um, in all kinds of areas in our life, in all kinds of relationships. Our culture is flooded with this entitlement focus today. We, de we think that we deserve rights for everything now. And we have special groups and statuses for everything. We think we're entitled to free phones. We think we're entitled to free this and free that. Here's the reality. Nothing is free, and anything that we receive is not a right, but ultimately it's a gift. It's a gift. And see, that's where you learn the antithesis to entitlement is gratitude. So we, as a church, if there's one thing that harms the church, it's an attitude where we feel like we're entitled to something rather than an attitude of graciousness and gratitude. Jesus here could have made every argument in his, in his humanity to say, well, I'm entitled to rights of deity and rights of status up here in the Godhead as a part of the Trinity. But notice what the verse says. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Many of us have this entitlement mindset, and the danger of an entitlement mindset is it can cause us to become very demanding and self-focused, leading to narcissistic tendencies, where we view people as products that exist to serve us. What is narcissism? It's the love of one's self rather than the love of others. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 2 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And what's at the top of the list? An attitude of entitlement, an attitude of narcissism, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. This attitude permeates our society today. And unfortunately, if we're all honest, it's infiltrated not only our church life, but it's infiltrated marriages it's infiltrated all kinds of relationships, entitlement. An entitlement attitude, I believe, springs forth many times because of a wrong view of stewardship and a wrong view on membership. 
back, thinking back to our message on stewardship, what happens when we become entitled? We feel like we own something. We feel like we deserve something. And we forget that what God has called us to be, our stewards, we never truly own anything. It's just passing through our momentary grasp on its way to someone else to be a blessing. And so I think that the reason we struggle with entitlement is because we have a wrong view on stewardship and we even have a wrong view on church membership where we feel like church membership is more of this, you know, I've, I've, I've paid my dues, I've gone through the rights of, of entry, and now I've got perks. That's an entitlement mindset. And so entitlement, entitlement, an attitude focused on self, thinking self is supreme. Uh, Tom Rainer in his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, many of you have already read it. If you are reading it, you'll notice this quote. He says, there were not many indications in the dying churches and the autopsy churches that most members had such a self-sacrificial attitude. They didn't. They didn't have an others-focused attitude. It was all about entitlement. Instead of an attitude, instead the attitude was self-serving, self-giving, and self-entitled. It was about me, myself, and I. And so the reason that churches aren't healthy, the reason that churches are dying across America is because you have all these factions of people who feel they're entitled, folks. So what's the antidote to entitlement? A spirit of gratitude that says, God, I don't own any of this. This is all a gift from your good and gracious hand. Help me to steward it wisely. And so the first attitude that is toxic to a healthy church environment is First, the attitude of entitlement. Number two, the second attitude, and really this springs from entitlement, and you see this. These are all kind of layered together as, as we study them today. The second attitude is the attitude of superiority. You can go ahead and write that down. So look at verse 7. So in verse 6, it says that Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. The second attitude that is toxic in a church environment is the attitude of superiority. What is superiority? It's the mindset that thinks you are better than most people. I put it that way because if I said it's the attitude that thinks you're better than everybody else, immediately the mental objection would be, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't think I'm better than everybody else, but just most people. Because that's how a superior attitude works, see. So it's an attitude that thinks that we're better than most people, but maybe not everyone. And, and how does this attitude of superior often, uh, superiority often manifest itself? It manifests itself, number one, in a comparison mentality. So, so you can point out a superiority complex attitude by a person who's always comparing themselves with one another kind of like that Pharisee did in Luke chapter 18. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. And he lists all the categories of which he was comparing himself to and then, or even as this publican who's standing right there with him. So a comparison men mentality. People who struggle with an attitude of superiority are always in a constant state of, of comparing themselves to others. And so how does this superiority attitude manifest itself? It, it manifests itself through a comparison mentality, but number two, it manifests itself most often in churches through an unteachable spirit. I know everything there is to know. 
I'm the, these are the things we say in our head. Nobody can teach me anything. I, I have nothing to learn. I'm at the end of the line of truth. And, you know, Jesus experienced this with the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't interested in learning anything from Jesus. Uh, in fact, they were dull of hearing. They were blind leaders of the blind. But they thought that they had the corner on God's truth. They thought they had all the revelation. And they could not see the revelation of God himself in human form in front of them. A superiority attitude really does come across in our relationships of life and certainly in church relationships. And, and many, healthy and dying, many unhealthy and dying churches get the attitude that their way is the best way. And how this superiority attitude shows up in churches sometimes is it also shows up in how churches compare themselves with other churches and how churches aren't able to be taught from other churches. Or they're not interested in having uh, you know, people uh, uh, encourage them and exhort them on, on how to be healthy as a church. And so this attitude of superiority to where many unhealthy and dying churches get the attitude that their way is the only and best way. And if other churches are growing, then they must be compromising and their growth must not be real. It's probably just fake. Well, I've heard that a lot growing up in churches where we hear about a church growing across town and the next uh, sentence out of our mouth is, well, they just must be compromising. That's why they're growing. You know what that is? That's an attitude of superiority. It's an attitude of comparison. We don't, we have no idea. And so we see that and we're like, okay, what this, what this attitude of superiority really is, is it's an attitude of pride and it must be confessed as sin and forsaken. If we've ever thought this about another ministry in town without really knowing why they were growing, why they were thriving, then mark it down. We most likely have an attitude of superiority. Why does superiority arise in our mindsets? Why does it creep into our life? put this up there on the screen, I, I, just as I thought about why is it that superiority creeps into our life? I think it's because of this. When someone has a proper view of their sin and a proper view of what makes them truly righteous before God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they no longer seek to rank themselves or compare themselves, and they no longer see themselves as superior to anyone else. And if a church is going to be healthy, if a church is going to really grow and be thriving, then we must reject the attitude of entitlement, the attitude of superiority, and we must take on ourselves the mindset of Christ, the attitude of Christ. He did not have an entitlement mindset, verse 6. He did not have a superiority complex, verse 7. He literally made himself of no reputation. Superiority. You ever heard the phrase, too many chiefs, not enough Indians? Superiority. You ever heard, too many cooks in the kitchen? Superiority. People who think they have to have the preeminence, just like Diotrephes did. Superiority. Entitlement. The third toxic attitude that hinders a healthy church from growing is number three, self-dependence. Self-dependence. 
So you see how these layer across one another. First, it starts with entitlement, which is a focus on self. Superiority, focus on self. Now it becomes self-dependence. And what do we mean by this? Look at verse 8. It says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now the first two attitudes that we have looked at, entitlement and superiority, they're fairly explicit here in verses 6 and 7 that Jesus was the antithesis of those. He had a gracious spirit, he had a grateful spirit, and he had a lowly or humble spirit. He did not have a superiority complex. He was humble. In fact, his disciples were all uh, worried about who was going to be the leader and who was going to sit next to him in the kingdom. And what did Jesus do? He donned a towel and he washed their feet. And so what a beautiful picture of the antithesis of these toxic attitudes. And so that's why we're looking at Christ today, because he's our example. He exemplified the right kind of attitudes that a church should have and that any relationship should have. By the way, oh yeah, by the way, (laughs) got to throw this in there on superiority. You know what? You'll get along better with your spouse if you realize that one of the reasons that God gave you your spouse is so that they could teach you how to be a better version of you. You know how many times spouses just holler past each other because they both have an air of superiority? The the, the other can't teach the other anything? Happens all the time. And you know what? When we don the attitude of gratefulness, when we don the attitude of humility, a lot starts to happen happen in a marriage as well. So self-dependence. So these first two attitudes were more explicit. The next two attitudes we're going to look at are more implicit here in the text. And I'll explain that. So it says in verse 8, he says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. As you study the life of Christ, what you find out is Jesus was not dependent upon himself in his humanity. In fact, in his humanity, was he 100% God? Yes. Was he 100% man? Yes. And in his humanity, he exemplified for us how we should live and follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us to follow in Christ's steps. And what Christ exemplified for us is a God dependence in his life. Listen to some of these verses. He says in John 5.19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. What was Jesus saying there in that verse? He was saying, I'm completely dependent upon the Father. I'm not doing this in my own strength. Do you remember the temptations of Satan? The temptations of Satan to Jesus in the wilderness were to get Jesus dependent on who? On himself. And Satan tried to twist the scriptures, which he always does, to try to make justification for Jesus to do that. But what did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus was exemplifying what it means to live a Savior or a God-dependent life. So something that's often misunderstood about the life of Jesus on this earth is that He did not one time play the trump card. You know, there's a trump card in in many games, like in Rook. You know, the trump takes everything else. It's kind of the uh, 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 shortcut card, you know. Jesus didn't take any shortcuts. He lived his life like we do 
as a man. He, he lived a total life of submission and dependence upon his heavenly father. How about you and me? So easy for us to lean on our own understanding. But God calls us to trust in the Lord with all our heart. And don't lean on our understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. And so what you see in churches is this self-dependent mindset where they, where they think that if, if the church is going to grow or then the church is going to be healthy, it's all up to them. And so they employ a lot of worldly means to see a church grow. And of course, that word grow becomes very nebulous, and that just means numbers. And we've said from the beginning in this series that this is not about just physical numbers, but it's about spiritual health, which does produce multiplication which is so encouraging because all of us love to see our spiritual lives growing. All of us like to see the things that we're connected to thriving with life. And so Jesus lived a life of total submission and dependence upon his heavenly Father. He says in John 8, 28, Then Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And so, God dependence, a Savior dependence. Now, we're going to talk about something next week, so I'm not going to get too deep into this, but here's an application. How do you really know if a church is dependent on God? How do you know if a church is really, they're, they're not in the self-dependence mindset, but they really are Savior dependent? Prayer. Prayer. Did Jesus have to pray? I mean, he was God. As I read the gospel, sometimes I'm like, man, Jesus, you prayed a lot. But wait, were you praying to yourself? Were you praying to the Father? I mean, of course, we, 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 we struggle to understand the Trinity in and of itself. But, but he was doing that. Again, to show us the example of a life lived in dependence upon God. So a church that is truly dependent upon the Lord is a church that is engaged in the activity of prayer. Christ exemplified this in his life of dependence. He was a man of prayer. So much so that when the disciples overheard him praying, they said, Lord. I mean, they, they had heard the Pharisees pray. They had heard the priests in the temple pray, but they said, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something about Jesus' life that just oozed a dependence upon his Father. And if we're going to be healthy and growing and thriving as a church, we must be dependent upon God. And it starts with prayer. Prayer. The story's told about a church that was on its final, final, final last breath of life. They were dying. They had been dying for years. And they had one of these final big business meetings where they tried to come up with fancy, self-dependent ways to keep the church afloat. Take out a loan, that was shot down. Fundraiser, that was shot down. Uh, tr try, to, try to do this big event, that was shot down. They had mentioned all these ideas before, and so they were all sitting there talking and then all of a sudden, someone said, well, have we prayed yet? And a couple of the leaders in the church said, has it really come to that? Um, excuse me. 
That should have been the first step. That should have been the first action, depending upon God. As you look at the relationships of your life, we know we can't make the relationships of our life work in and of our own strength. Jesus says, without him, we can do nothing. And so he calls us to be dependent. And the way that this is going to be evidenced is a church that is giving itself wholly to prayer. Study the book of Acts. See the early church and see how that church was a church full of prayer. And yes, they were praying for one another's needs intercessorily. But they were entreating the Lord to give them boldness to proclaim the gospel, to live the gospel, that the truth would open blind hearts. So it was very missional in how they were praying as well. So entitlement, superiority, self-dependence, and the final, the final attitude we see, we heard in those couple of leaders when they said, well, has it come to that, you know, prayer? That's very pessimistic, isn't it? The spirit of pessimism. I, this is probably the one that, I mean, can you see Jesus being pessimistic? No, he wasn't pessimistic even though he knew he was going to face some very difficult times in his humanity. But what did he keep before him? Look at verses 9 through 11. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus lived a life not of pessimism, but of expectant joy and hope. He knew that he was going to face difficult times. He understood that. And of course, he exemplified a humble spirit, a servant spirit. He did not exemplify an entitlement mindset. He exemplified a dependence upon his heavenly father throughout his life in prayer and then he always kept in view that even though the days would be dark in which he would go through this suffering for the sins of mankind, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame, who for the joy that was set before him. Have you ever read Hebrews 12, 2 and asked yourself the question, what's the joy that Jesus was talking about? Who for the joy that was set before him? You know what the joy is? If you study it out, you're going to find that it's you and it's me. We're the joy for which he endured the momentary afflictions so that we could bow to him as his children, as his saved and redeemed people, and say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus didn't have a spirit of pessimism about him. What is pessimism? It's the tendency to see the worst in things and expect the worst possible outcome. It's that Eeyore mentality. It's that Debbie Downer mentality. It's having a bad day and I'm sure it's going to get worse. And you know what? This creeps into churches with a victim mentality. The days are dark, the, the times are bad, and if we're not careful, we let that dictate the narrative of our victory march. Or we let failures as a church, we, we, we let the ebbs and flows of a church life, we get discouraged and we give up. 
Pessimists, of course, object and they say, no, I'm just a realist. (laughs) However, reality is not usually as dark as they claim it is. Pessimism acknowledges the facts and then speculates about how much worse they're going to become. We do this all the time in so many areas. But the Christian whose faith rules out pessimism. You see, pessimism really is faithlessness. It's faithlessness. So a Christian whose faith rules out pessimism simply acknowledges the facts as they exist and then entrusts them to the miracle-working God. John 16, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. He had just gotten done telling them that they were going to go through some difficult times. But he said, have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. What did he say? Times are going to be bad. You're going to fail. He even you know, told Peter, Peter, you're going to fail me. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And if there's something that I think some of us just need to hear today, it's that one verse. Christ has overcome. We don't have to have the spirit of pessimism. Uh, We were um, here yesterday for Noah Ogle's Eagle Scout ceremony. Noah, that was amazing to see. And just to go back through all the things that you've learned as as a scout. And one of the guest speakers had a great quote about pessimists. Listen to this. The speaker yesterday, he said, a pessimist complains about the wind. An optimist expects the wind to change, but a leader simply adjusts the sail. And what I would challenge all of us to be are leaders. To know that winds of adversary will come, but to use those to our advantage to take us further to where we need to be. That's exactly what persecution did to the early church. Could the early church have sat in their upper rooms and said, woe is me, we're being persecuted for the cause of Christ? They could have. But do you know what they did? They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. They didn't have a pessimistic spirit. They didn't think that the best days of the church were behind them. They believe that the best days of the church were ahead and all they were called by God's spirit to do is trim the sail, move forward. Entitlement, superiority, self-dependence, and pessimism. Four attitudes that will hinder not only the health of a church relationship, those four attitudes will hinder your marriage relationship. Those four attitudes will hinder how you influence and exhort and lead people in your job. Those attitudes will influence every area of your life. And so if you want healthy relationships in your life, then look at the antithesis of those negative attitudes. Gratefulness, humble servanthood, God dependence, and a hope, expectant joy in God that the greatest days are ahead for God's honor and God's glory. Attitude is powerful. If you don't believe me, just ask Norman Cousins, and he'll tell you. Attitude can change a whole lot. But without the right attitude of God's people, our health will be hindered.
Let's pray.